Can I just say, a couple weeks ago I was in Atlanta. I was at a conference. It was called The Front Porch, and it was predominantly an African-American church conference. And I wanted to go because I'm a pastor to African-Americans. I wanted to be a better pastor to to you. And and so just to hear from some of our African-American brothers and sisters um, was good for me. It was so refreshing to me. But one of the things that was really encouraging to me was that kind of response. And I want to, when people would get up and they'd talk and, 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 and folks would be like, you know, say that again or bring it, you know? And I was like, man, I, I want more of that. So feel free. All right. It's a good thing. It's an encouraging thing. So anyway, uh, Timothy Henry Gray, probably not heard of him. Let me tell you something about him. He is no longer with us. His body was found by children who were sledding under a freeway overpass. It was actually a railroad overpass outside of Evanston, Wyoming, back in December of 2012. Mr. Gray was a homeless man, and he died of hypothermia. He had been homeless for quite some time. The temperatures were hovering around the single digits as he was living under this bridge. He was only 60 years old. Imagine the the shock of children sledding and finding a a dead body. Now, it's a tragic story, and if it's not tragic enough, listen to this. Gray probably didn't know this at the time of his death. He was the half-great-nephew of a reclusive and eccentric New York heiress named Huguette Clark, who herself had died just about a year and a half earlier in May 2011. She was 104 years old. And Timothy Gray, not knowing that he was this great half-nephew of this eccentric heiress, was unaware that he was entitled to 6.25% of her copper mining fortune, which conservatively has been valued at about $306 million. Mr. Gray died penniless, not knowing that he was the rightful heir to almost $20 million. Now, I read that this week uh, in a news article. It was an old news article. I was was searching for tragic stories. (laughs) Few things are as tragic, right, as a man who lives as a pauper because he, he doesn't realize he's really a prince. And, and in this case, something quite similar, right? And I, I was searching for tragic stories like that because I was aware that that problem, not knowing what, who you really are or what you're really entitled to, is a problem that is a common tragedy for many Christians. Uh, I don't, I don't know that there's any issue in discipling people, uh, where people are struggling in their, their faith, uh, that isn't somehow rooted into a forgetting of who you are in Christ. Right? That, that you're princes and princesses, if you will. You are sons and daughters of a king, and yet we live so often like paupers because we forget that. We forget that, and we don't realize what we are entitled to, which is a weird word, right, in light of grace. We're not entitled to anything, you might say. But in Christ, because of his finished work and God's adopting of you as sons and daughters, you are entitled 
in Christ, to be co-heirs with him. I wonder if that kind of, you bristle against that, just, I'm entitled to that. It, it almost, it almost like beats against our reformed sensibilities, right? And yet, that's the problem, I think, so often, is we, we don't realize who we are in Christ. And so John is, is gonna share with us this morning, uh, more about that wonderful truth of who we are in Christ. Uh, so let's, let's, let's dig in. And what I want to do is I'm going to go backwards. So, so John, you know, we're looking at verses one through 10 and, 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 and there's sort of this flow, uh, of, of thought that you can, you can categorize in three ways. The first one would be who we are in Christ. And then the second thing he's going to start talking about is what we will be when he comes back. And then he, he finishes up with what we should look like, uh, in the, in the last part of the, of the text. And I'm going to reverse that. Okay. Um, only for the sake of, I think the, the who we are, where he starts is the point that I, I'm hoping that you'll walk out most impacted by. Because we're, it, it, from there flows what we will be and what we should be. And we need to talk about what we should be and what we will be. But, but, but I think pastorally and just knowing you, uh, like I do, I think, and knowing me like I do, I think what's most important is that we walk out knowing who we are. Uh, our identity in Christ. So with uh, apologies to John, I'm going to reverse his his order. All right. Let's talk about uh, the last part of the text. It's actually the biggest chunk of the text. What Christians should be. And we're looking here again at verses 3 through 10. Last week we looked at the verses preceding this, right at the end of chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, and, and, and it says there that Jesus is going to come back, right? We talked about the great hope of the church. Jesus is coming back, and he's coming back to fully and finally establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. That's our great hope. That is awesome news. That's the fulfillment of all of the promises of the Bible, right? He's coming back. And when he does, he's bringing the kingdom with him. That's what we look forward to. And John says, this is a motivation for us to live in light of his kingdom reign and rule now. Yes, it's something that hasn't happened yet. It's a, it's a future event, but it's a reality. It's a promise that we can be sure of. And it's, it's a promise that has already begun to take effect because the kingdom that he will fully establish on earth has already been inaugurated at his first coming. By his death and resurrection, as, as he has called us, those of us who have placed our faith in Christ to be a part of the church, we are the first fruits of the kingdom. The kingdom is expanding even now, right? So John says the motivation that he's going to come back and bring it fully about is, 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 a, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a motivation that should already be at work in us. Look again at verse 3. He says, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Because you hope in Christ, because you know he's coming back, we should be then living in light of that reality and purifying ourselves as he is pure. We began to flesh that out last week. Uh, John fleshes it out more in verses 4 through 10. Let's look at it one more time. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. No one, therefore we can say, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. And he says, 
little children, and he's thinking of these false teachers that are at work in the church here. Let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he, as Jesus, is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil's been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared, the first coming, was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now that last that last part of the sentence, nor is the one who does not love his brother, is what the next passage next week, which Jorge will be preaching, is all about. I will not step on your toes, Jorge. I'm leaving that one there. All right, but let's let's just kind of focus on here this idea, the point that he's making. There are two rival families at work. That's what he's saying. You've got the the family of God, you've got the family of the devil, you've got the children of God, you've got the the children of Satan. There's two rival families at work, and everyone alive, both past, present, and future, is a member of one of those two families. Now, I'm saying that, I'm I'm hoping you're getting the exclusivity of that. You are exclusively one or the other, there's no in-between or other options. That's, That's the point he's making here. You are one of two. You're a child of God or you are a child of Satan. This is a rivalry that is epic. Uh, I was Googling other epic family rivalries this week, and I came up with a few others to just kind of get our minds in the right frame here. Hatfields and McCoys, right? Capulets and Montagues, epic family rivalry, except unlike those, this feud is of far more significance (laughs) and... It involves one completely righteous family because of its family head. One completely righteous family head and one completely unrighteous family head. That makes this family rivalry unique in all family rivalries. Usually there's two wrongs, right? (laughs) This is one completely righteous head, one completely unrighteous head. And, of course, he's talking about God and Satan. There's a cosmic rivalry between God and Satan that has been at work since the beginning of time. Look again at what he says in verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. I think what John is doing here is something John often does is he appeals back to Genesis. And he's saying, look, this, this has been going on since the beginning. He's, he's thinking here of Genesis, you know, one and two, where the family of God was, was created as God creates man and woman in his image and he blesses them and he, he asks them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. They are with him. There's, there's no sin there in their midst, right? But in the garden lurks a danger. There is opportunity for sin and one who is sinning already Satan at play. He comes in the form of a serpent to destroy what God has made. He wants to destroy Adam and woman. She's not yet Eve at this moment. He hasn't named her yet, so I'll call Adam, which means man. So man and woman. He wants to destroy them, destroy their fellowship with God, destroy their fellowship with one another. And that 
is that's been the business that he has been about since that moment on. Preceding that moment, he was already in rebellion against God. It's interesting to see that in Genesis chapter 3, he shows up as a serpent. We get a revelation and he's a full-blown dragon, right? This is a, this is a power that is at work and expanding and growing in its desire for the destruction of God's work. And so Jesus, he says, came to destroy that work. He came to put an end to what the devil has been trying to do all this time, to destroy the the family of God by coming and destroying Satan. God in that judgment in Genesis 3 promises that day when from the seed of the woman would come one who would crush the head of the serpent. And that's Jesus. He came to destroy his work. And he is reclaiming all things back under the rightful headship of the good family head. That's what's happening throughout here. You, you exist within that tension. You were born into it. You exist into it. And until he comes back, that's the story of life in a nutshell. You just have to figure out which family you're in. It transcends you. But you're in one of the two families. This is the point that John is making here. And Paul, the apostle Paul, also speaks much about this rivalry that's going on. And he reminds us in Ephesians chapter 6, and I'll put it up on the screen. He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, I'm quoting Paul here because there's an important point that he's making here. It's a reminder that we need. This feud, this cosmic feud, is a feud between our family heads. It is, it is a, it is a cosmic rivalry between God and Satan. And you, you fit into that, but listen, We're not called to enter into the feud as much as we're called to be rescued out of it. I think that's something that, that, that too often people get wrong. Uh, the feud is because of, again, Satan's work to destroy what God had created. And part of Satan's effort there, part of the curse of that was to create division among us, that we would fight each other, right? So, so the solution to that problem isn't that we continue to fight each other. God's work in Christ to bring all things back is, is a reminder that this is his battle. Our battle isn't against flesh and blood. We're called to be rescued out of that cosmic feud. Colossians 1, 13 and 14, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness, from the reign of one family head, And he's transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son into the reign of the rightful family head in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's how we're transferred from one to the other is our sins are forgiven. We no longer identify with the works of Satan, but we're washed clean to be identified with the works of the sinless one, Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2 You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. This is the state of all human beings outside of Christ. Following the course of the world, you're dead in sin. 
following, get this, the prince of the power of the air. This is Satan. You're under that rule, that reign. You're following him, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, by birth, this is who we are, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Because of our headship, under the, the family headship that we're under in Satan, we are dead and condemned. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Just file that away. We're going to come back to that concept. Because of his love, great love for us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. It's by grace that you've been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You have a new identity because you have a new family head. In other words, you are naturally children of the devil unless, and this is a big capital, unless you've been rescued out and adopted as children of God. And that only happens by repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. John says something about this in his gospel, John 1, 12 and 13. But to all who did receive Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now he says something there about being born into God that is carried over here in chapter three of first John. And we're going to talk about it. Let, let me, let me, um, let me preface it by, by asking this question because I think it's something that comes up often. Who are the children of God? Who are the children of God? And we are. Amen. But here's the question. Is everybody, is everybody a child of God? Now, how we answer that, I think it's, it's really important. It's a, it's a foundational understanding of, of, the, of the gospel, of right doctrine, because we hear often, we're all God's children, meaning everybody in the world, we're all God's children, right? And in, in one small sense, that's true. We are created by and created in the image of God. However, in Scripture... The designation of children of God is not broadly applied in that way at all. Ever. It's applied entirely to those who, by God's sovereign work, have been brought in to covenant relationship with Him. Now, Paul talks about it in terms of sonship. Uh, we can see that many, many times over in the Apostle Paul's writings. He, he uses the word son. You have been adopted as sons. And it's an important, it's an important word because Paul is a, he was a Pharisee, meaning he was a lawyer. And so he's thinking in legal terms. So if, when you hear son in the New Testament, you ought to think similarly in, in legal terms. And, and, and note that he doesn't say sons and daughters. He says sons. And oftentimes we will translate that sort of gender neutrally and say it, it applies to men and women equally, which is true. But, but don't miss the fact that Paul isn't saying 
men and women. He's specifically using sons, not because he's a misogynist in any way, but because he's a lawyer. And he recognizes that legally there is one rightful heir in the family. And it was the firstborn son. So when Paul says sons, hear that as a Christian in, in the way that, that you, would, you would hear him speak in Galatians when he says right after this whole diatribe about being adopted as sons, he says that in Christ there's no male or female, there's no Jew or Gentile, there's no slave or free, but we're one in Christ. He says that right in the context of saying you're sons. And he's trying to make the point that there are no haves and have-nots in Christ. But you're all rightful heirs because the firstborn son, Jesus, has shared with you his inheritance. Okay, so that's the legal definition that Paul uses. John is different. John isn't a lawyer. John tends to think more in terms of family relationships. And so we see him talking about children a lot, don't we? You're children of God. Dear children, you are either children of the Father or you're children of Satan. And, 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 and in, his, in his thinking, it has to do more with not our legal status, but our, although it's related, but, but really our nature. You've been born again in Christ. You are no longer what you were, but you've been remade, born anew into a new family. And so there's a family relationship that he's thinking about that we ought to grab onto because there's a beauty in that. I know Jorge had mentioned uh, earlier in the service, you know, maybe your family upbringing was, was not ideal. Maybe you had an abusive parent, abusive father, uh, and or an absent father or something, and that, that skews your understanding of what a family relationship ought to look like. Um, and unfortunately, that's true for many of us, isn't it? Uh, and, and yet it's not true for all of us, by God's grace. Some of us, and, and I would include myself in this, in this boat, uh, have had wonderful parents. Uh, I have a father that I can look to who was, he was not absent, he was not abusive, he was gracious and loving and kind and, and good to me, uh, and I praise God for that. But that, 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 that helps me, and I hope it can help you, even if you haven't experienced it. If you can just, if you can just fathom it, what a, what a right family relationship would look like. John is pointing us to the ultimate ideal of that under the headship of our Father, God, and saying, this is who you now are. You are, yeah, Paul would say you're legally heirs. I would say you're, 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 you're naturally now sons and daughters. You're children. And so... If God has done this work in you to transfer you, to rescue you from one kingdom to the other, and the point of that was to destroy the destroying work of Satan and reclaim the fruitful work of God, then you're going to look different, aren't you? Your life is going to be different. Your behavior is going to look different because your nature's changed. So what is, what is meant by that? Well, you know, the scriptures give us a great contrast between the works of the devil and the works of the father in Galatians chapter five. Is it up there? All right. So, so here's what, again, this is the apostle Paul talking about the fruit of the flesh or the, the, the works of the flesh versus the, the fruit of the spirit. 
And he mentions here in verse 19 of uh, Galatians 5. He says, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries. Again, there's that that tension in in, uh, human relationships, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Why? Because those are the things that indicate that you're under the wrong family head. You're under the still the reign and the rule of, of your father, the devil, and his work to destroy all the pure and good things that God had made us for is, is evident in the outflow of your life. But here's what it looks like to walk as children of God. The fruit of the Spirit is it's the opposite of those things, isn't it? It's love, not division and and dissension, it's love, it's joy, it's peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. Against these things there is no law. And yet John in, in chapter 3 of 1 John says it's the other things that are lawlessness. John is just simply making this point. Look, you're one of the two families and you'll know by your fruit. So he's asking you to evaluate yourself. What's the fruit of my life? Which one characterizes me? And and he's not only asking us to evaluate ourselves in that light, but he's also making the point that the false teaching that so damages the church makes light of that contrast. It, it, it makes light of sin. And that was what was happening in the churches there. And it's what happens today. right? When, when in the churches, if the teaching uh, or the practice of people in churches reflects, look, it doesn't really matter if you know, we've got sexual immorality or division or all these kinds of strife, things going on. We're going to make light of those things We've like totally forgotten that no, if 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 Christ's work is 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 uh what's the word I'm looking for? If it's if it's if it's at work in us, if Christ has changed our nature, we don't look like that anymore. So there you have it. That's what we should be. And it's a good way to evaluate yourself. Am I a Christian? Now he moves from what Christians will be into that. We're moving backward. So let's talk about what Christians will be. Not just what they should be, but what they will be. And this is a short point. I won't spend a whole lot of time on it because we spent some time on it last week. At the end of verse 2, He says, we're God's children now, but what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So this is what you should look like. And if you do look like that, this is what you will look like. Here's the great hope that we have again. When Jesus comes back, 
all of that transforming work will find its completion in us. We're going to look not like works in progress who are getting more and more conformed to the image of Christ, but, but when, when he fully appears, we will then be in the image of Christ. We will be fully conformed into his image. Now, I want to just say a couple things about that before we, we move on, because again, we covered a lot of that last week. But, but let me say what he does mean and doesn't mean by that. Does he mean by that that we will be divine like Jesus? You'll be little gods. That's not what he means. What he means is, again, going back to the, the, the biblical theology of understanding the work of Jesus to undo the work of Satan is that he is bringing all things back in right relationship with him and with one another. And so therefore, we will be conformed back into the image that was broken by the work of the devil. Okay? That's what he means. We will be like him. But why and how? He says, because we will see him as he really is. Which is interesting. What's going to happen? What, what, what flip, what switch is flipped? When Jesus comes back, that all of a sudden takes you into completion. Uh, I, I wonder about that a lot. And I, and I have, I think, two answers that I, I, can, I can back up biblically. The first one is that there's, a, there's an actual transforming power that will take place. We know that we will be given resurrected bodies, right? That the dead will rise. The, the bodies are going to come out of the graves and, and be caught up with him in the air. Our, our, our souls will be matched up again with our bodies, but renewed bodies, no longer decaying bodies, but, but these sinless bodies, these perfected bodies. So there's a transformation, a physical transformation, a material transformation that's going to take place. And we see that often in Scripture, but that's not what John appeals to here. He says that we'll be transformed because we'll see him as he is. And so I, as I think about that, I think, you know, I think what John's point is that not only are we going to have physical changes, but we're going to have desire changes. The desire changes that should be at work in you now that would cause you to not want to live like a child of Satan anymore, but a child of God's, will be completely transformed as well. But, but it'll be transformed because you're going to see something that you haven't seen fully yet. You'll see Jesus like he really is. And I think the point is that my desires and my affections will be changed completely when I'm presented with the best object of desire that I could possibly see. Isn't that how you're transformed now? Aren't, aren't your affections transformed now from, from a lesser desire to a better desire when you see the better desire for what it is? Um, C.S. Lewis talks about this, you know, like, you know, why are we satisfied eating mud pies when there's a feast spread out in front of us in Christ? That same idea, you know, if, if any of you who have dealt with addiction and overcome your addiction, you know that it's really hard to overcome an addiction. You don't do it by sheer willpower alone, but you have to see something as better. That suddenly that the, the thing you were addicted to becomes undesirable, unsatisfactory to you because something better has come along and replaced that desire and affection. And I think that's the point that, that he's getting at here. When, when you see Jesus as he really is, that switch is going to go fully to the other side because your desire now for him will far surpass any sinful desire you could ever have had. You're going to have a perfected body, but didn't, 
I don't know, didn't Adam and Eve have that too? I mean, weren't they still, weren't they in sinless perfection, if you would, in the, in the early stage of the garden? And yet somehow they still fell. Why? Because they were tempted by something that looked appealing to them. But when you see Jesus as he really is, and for whatever reason, I don't know that they saw that the way that you're going to see it when he comes back. Your desire will be no longer tempted by anything appealing because nothing's more appealing than Jesus as he really is. I think that's what he's saying here. So he says, look, this is what you should look like and this is what you will look like. But here's, here's I think, the capstone of the whole thing. Uh, let's talk about this first point he talks about. What you are. Can I read it again? Verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. And so we are. If you look that up in different Bible translations, let me tell you how it reads. Again, it says, see what kind of love the Father has here in the ESV. In the NIV it says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us. King James says, behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed on us. The Phillips version says, consider the incredible love that the Father has shown us. The message translates it this way, what marvelous love. The Father has extended to us. Just look at it. I love that. <laughs> Just look at it. And the New Living Translation, see how very much our Father loves us. See, what's, what's happening here is the English translations are struggling to get it the way John's communicating it here. And I, I mentioned this last week. It's the same word that was used when Jesus calms the storm and the disciples are like, they, they see him hush the wind and the waves and they say, what manner of man is this? And literally it means, what world did this come from? Right? I, I use the word far out, right? This far out. And, and so, so let's, let's, let's just get back to that again. What's John saying here? I think what John is doing is he is having an outburst of wonder and of excitement. He's talking about all this, this truth about Jesus coming back and, 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 and what he's going to do when he comes back. And sort of in the middle of this, in verse 1, it's like it just erupts in him. Right? As he's thinking about all this wonderful truth, it just sort of erupts. He just goes, whoa, what world did this come from? I think we have to read it that way. It's an, it's an outburst. God's love for us, in other words, he's saying, it's a miracle. It's a miracle I mean, that, that he would take us from the, the domain of darkness, and, and it's not just that you're victims of that domain. You choose it. God's love is demonstrated that while you were still sinners, Christ died for you, right? You followed, we're told in Scripture, that path. You willfully followed after your father, the devil, and in the midst of that willful rejection and rebellion, God loved you. What a miracle! And, and John, it's like John saying, do you even, can you fathom the love? I don't usually like the message as a translation, but I think you got it right here. Just look at it. Just look at it. it it's, a, it's a miracle. But, but here's the thing. It's not just a miracle. It's certain. Because he says, and so we are. That's a, it's a done deal, church. 
What a miracle that God would love you and call you. What a miracle that he would call you a child. And guess what? You are. We are children of God. Listen, if someone ever asks you, are you a Christian? Let me tell you how not to answer the question. Don't say this. I'm trying to be. I'm trying to be. No. You are. If Christ saved you from your sin, you are. And I think, I think we, we struggle with that because we have bad days that stretch into bad weeks. <laughs> Sometimes they stretch into bad months. <laughs> How about it, right? Thank you, Naiwana. I love it. I do. I love it. And we think, maybe I could believe I was a child of God when I, when I seem to... I seemed to feel like the fruit in my life was consistent enough, and, and, and yet I had a bad day. And so it's hard to feel that way. Now, in light of what John's just said, the fruit of your life will bear out whether or not you are a child of God or a child of Satan. There's truth to that, but I want to catch something about the way he phrases that. Every, every time he brings that up, there is this, there is this uh, indication there that is a persisting in, a lifestyle that is... The, the, the works of the flesh. It is a continuing in. Is John saying that a Christian won't sin? No. And we know that because, again, he says in the beginning of chapter 2, I'm writing these things so that you don't sin, but if you do, you have an advocate. He's not saying you're not going to sin. He is saying, though, you shouldn't persist in it. There shouldn't be this ongoing pattern of your life where you've diminished sin so much where it just doesn't matter anymore. You, you, there ought to be a holy fight in you. There ought to be a sense in which I don't want to live that way. The more I see Jesus for who he is, the more my affections are, are changed and desirous of looking like and following after him. That ought to be a, a pattern in your life. But, but listen, a bad day doesn't screw up your status as a child. Are you a parent? Some of you are. I, 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 think, I think we have to, we have to realize that the reason why that's true that their bad day can't screw up our status is because here's how we got it in verse 1. It was given to us. It was given to you because God as a father is a giver. And again, if you're a parent, you can understand that. I hope you can understand that. I want to give to my kids. What's best for them? I want to, I want to give to them everything that, that would be, that would set them up for success and joy and peace. I want to, I want to do that for them, right? That's what fathers do. That's what good fathers do. And John's making the point that that's, that's what your father in heaven is like. He's given this to you. And so you have it. Luke 11. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? He's going to give to you goodness. Matthew 6. 
Look at the birds of the air. They, they don't sow or reap or gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Okay, can you just answer that question for yourself right now? Some of you probably aren't believing that right now. Could you just nod your head? Yes, you are. Are you not of more value? You are. You are. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? You have little faith. He, he, Jesus adds that, you have little faith there, because we, we don't believe that, do we? We fail to believe it a lot. And he's saying, I think he's saying what John's saying, so you are. So you are. Therefore, don't be anxious. Saying, what do we eat, or what do we drink, or what do we wear? For the Gentiles are after all these things. Again, those who don't know the Father, they seek after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. See, we have a Father who is good, and, and, and he's, we're hearing directly from his mouth through Jesus here, I Love you. I love you. I will care for. I'll take care of. I love you. Why are you tempted to doubt that? Because we are, aren't we? Why are we tempted to doubt that? It's because we don't see God answering our requests. Sometimes, do we? Now, listen. If if my African American friends from Atlanta were here this week, they'd be all, "Come on now, come on now." We don't see it. We don't see him answering those requests all the time, do we? Come on now. We don't. And so we wonder, right? And that can be one of the most frustrating things for Christians and a great source of our identity crisis. Wait a minute. Jesus said, my father cares for me. I can ask him, and yet I seem to be asking him, and I don't seem to be getting the answer. So why is that? Can I just give you a couple of encouragements this morning? The first one is this. We ask for wrong things and with wrong motives a lot. We do. We ask for wrong things and with wrong motives a lot. Kind of like a kid in a grocery store. You're, oh, man. Worst thing you could do is right take your little toddlers to the grocery store with you or take them to Target with you. Put them in that shopping cart. You're walking around. I want that. I want that. Give me that. I want that. Right? Every impulse. That, 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 that. And, and what do you do as, as a parent? <coughs> You, you do one of two things. Usually, you say no. Right? That giant wad of pure sugar is not the best thing for you. No. Or sometimes, as a good parent, listen, sometimes you ignore it, don't you? Not because you're ignoring your children, but because you're, you're, you know that even entertaining that for them is not best for them. So you just kind of, you, you redirect. And I think that's true with God. Remember, he, he's accomplishing his good and perfect will for your life. He's accomplishing his good and perfect will for your life. He's not accomplishing your short-sighted 
sin-tinged purposes for your own life. So when you think that God is not hearing you, rely on the promises of Jesus. He is. And he will care for you. But sometimes you're a child in a grocery cart. His love for you remains. He wants your best. And, and here's, the other, here's the other truth. Other times, and this one's hard to see in the moment. It's really hard to see in the moment. But hindsight proves it out every time. Other times, the pathway to experiencing the greatest love from the Father runs through pain and suffering. It's the way of the cross, right? It's, it's the heart of the gospel. We, we live in a, in a broken, sinful world. And so every, every desire we have, every, every influence on us is broken. And for God to reclaim all of that, He's got to reach down into that brokenness and draw us out. And I think the whole point of the gospel, God's sovereignty over the whole, the whole arc of the thing, where why did, why was there a fall and, and why do we live with sin and, and why do we need Jesus to come and, and make things right? The whole arc of that and the wisdom of God is that God's love for us would be on display in a much greater way by reaching into brokenness than it would be if we had never fallen. It just is. There's a greater measure of love that has to reach into brokenness, isn't there? And so to experience the love of God as your Father will sometimes, sometimes entail loss and pain and suffering and enduring through that because God's love for you wants to go deeper. And you can trust that. He's a good father. And you in Christ are his child. You are. And your ability to live this week with your affections in the right place and your desires in the right place will be greatly impacted by your confidence in what you already are. So know it. Let me just close with what I think is a great source of comfort and hope for those of us as we look to the love of God to endure. And as I close, I'm just going to ask you to go ahead and just bow your heads and close your eyes. I just want you to focus on the Word of God. I'm going to read from Romans chapter 8. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. 
and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches our hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Do you know who you are, Christian? Why live as a pauper when you've been adopted as the son or the daughter of the king? We need to proclaim the reality of who we are and who our father is. And these guys are going to help us to do that. Would you stand and let's go out singing the truth of our sonship and daughterhood in Christ.